This episode of the Sunday Salon is sponsored by Number Three London Dry Gin, the only gin to have ever been voted world's best gin four times. Containing just six botanicals, it brings together the perfect refreshing balance of juniper, citrus and spice, ideal for the ultimate dry martini, or, my favourite, a gin and tonic. Distilled in Holland, the home of gin, it took them two years to create their masterpiece, working with master distillers, top mixologists and Dr David Cluton, the only man to hold a PhD in gin. The perfect addition to any drinks trolley, number three is available to purchase at selected stores nationwide, including Waitrose and Berry Brothers and Rudd, for £35. Discover gin just as it should be. Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Azania Jarvis, and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads, and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories, and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. My guest this week is Marie Leconte. Marie grew up in France and then moved to the UK in 2009 to study journalism. As a political journalist, she's written for the likes of The New Statesman, The Sunday Times, The Evening Standard and BuzzFeed, and is a regular talking head on television. Last year, she was named one of Forbes Europe's 30 Under 30. Now she's published her first book, Haven't You Heard? Gossip, Power and How Politics Really Works, which I absolutely loved. Whether or not you're a political geek, it's honestly the most fun, entertaining and insightful read. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have her on. Marie, welcome. Thank you so much for coming along today. It's such a joy to have you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed the book. We were talking about it before we started recording and I actually took the proof on holiday with me. It was such a pleasure reading it every day, sitting in the town square in Italy. <laughs> it was reading about uh, Westminster. Um, but, but before we launch into everything, I wonder if you can just describe the book and, and what made you write it. I guess the easier to explain it is probably... So I kind of came in, so I'm a political journalist now, but I kind of came it th- to it via a slightly weird route. I basically started by being a political gossip columnist. So mm. I know you used to be a diarist as well, so I was a diarist <laughs> um, at the Evening Standard um, in 2015. Um, and so kind of started doing stuff around Westminster by, you know, not by covering press conferences and stuff, but just by going to the events and the parties and the book launches and like the bars of parliament, whatever. So I think that the kind of like gossipy personal aspect of politics is always what kind of drew my attention. But also beyond that, I think is the fact that so when I sort of came into politics, I was already quite a big nerd. And I was like, I know what to expect. I know I understand how British politics works. This will be fine. And then I kind of started working around um, SW1 and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, turns out I had no idea how stuff actually worked around here. <laughs> um, and there was so much from, you know, the way, I guess, like, MPs behave, how you meant to, like, interact with them as a journalist, how they interact with each other, how you interact with the journalists, that, that every sort of aspect, I think, of politics, it turns out didn't quite work the way I thought it would. And yeah. so, basically, the book is kind of trying to explain, yeah, I mean, how, how stuff really works, but obviously, like, that's that, that sounds very grand. But it's kind of focusing on basically the personal aspect of the political. So mm. it's about people's character and how they interact with each other and the conversations they have, who they like, who they hate, and how that kind of all influences really heavily the way the country is run effectively. Mm. It's interesting, just now you mentioned, oh, I understand British politics. You're French. You only moved here to study journalism. So I wondered, where did your interest in British politics come from? Were you already interested or was it just a function of the fact that you were living here? I mean, it, <laughs> it's really bad because I feel like I should come up with a 
with a better, like basically fake story uh, <laughs> that is more professional because the real version, which I've, I've told um, a few times before, is that. So I moved here in 2009 to do a degree in journalism. I was 17. I didn't really have an interest in politics in France and obviously kind of came here, didn't really care, like vaguely knew I think who Gordon Brown was, but that was effectively it. Um, and then there was the election of 2010, which I vaguely, but like very, very vaguely paid attention to. Um, and I thought, actually, I remember, which was really cringe now, I was like, oh, who's that Nick Clegg? He sounds quite inspiring. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Nick <Clegg mania laughs> And yeah, I was I kind of taken Nick. in a bit by Clegg-mania at first. And then basically what happened is that the day of the election happened to be the same day as the um, last day of my, the first year of my degree. Right. And so obviously I went to get very drunk with some friends at the gig of this guy I really fancied. <laughs> and and after the gig, he was like, uh, hey, by the way, um, we're having an after party at my house if you want to come. And I was like, oh my God, I am finally going to get with this guy. Like, all my dreams are coming true on the end of like, no, uh, the year. And so we, like, a bunch of us went back to his house and then literally as soon as we got there, he started getting off with this other girl. And I was like, oh no. Um, and I didn't know anyone at the party and I'm still quite new to London obviously and I didn't really know how to get home so I was like oh because obviously it's pre-smartphones I was like cool I'm gonna I'm gonna stay here and make my own fun and the TV was on in the corner of the living room um, and it was showing the election because I think someone had just forgotten to turn it off um, and so I just sat next to the telly by myself all night watching the election <laughs> and just got really into it. So literally yeah. until about 8 a.m. I was like, this is great. This is really fun. Yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, so genuinely like that, that, that is the actual story of how I first got interested in a in a British politics it by, was a by failing to get off with a guy in a band. <laughs> <laughs> it was a particularly dramatic election, that one, with a sort of coalition wrangling. It and was, so. and it was really fun because I sort of became the political expert of the party, so people would come around and be like, so what's going on now? And I was like, well, so there is a hung parliament, which I have just learned what that is. <laughs> Let me tell you. Let me explain. Um, <laughs> I think that that's a very good story. I wouldn't make one up. I think that's that's much more fun. Just rewinding a bit, what were you like as a child? Had you always wanted to be a writer? Uh, yes. So basically when I, was, when I was really young, when I was like six or seven, I was like, I want to be a poet. Um, or like maybe some you know some kind of novelist, and then my grandmother, who I'm very close to and who's wonderful, uh, but also very sort of like down to earth, was like, Marie, you can't be a poet because they will get you no money at all. How about being a journalist? It's kind of the same. You get to write words, but also you have a salary. And I was like, yeah, that seems fair. Um, so yeah, from about seven, I was like, yeah, cool. Um, and then I did my first. Um, this is tragic. I did my first internship at my local paper when I was twelve oh. uh, for a week. Because uh, our neighbours, like one of our neighbours, uh, worked there, and so my dad like had to go around and was like, "Can my daughter just like come <laughs> hang out for a week?" Um, and yeah, and then Rosie went there, and I was like, "Cool, yeah, no, that was great. That just confirms my suspicion that I wanted to be a journalist." And then, so obviously, I had like personal like city blogs when I was twelve, thirteen, but then. Mm. I started a music website when I was 15, kind of like quite indie music-y type stuff uh, with interviews of like bands and, you know, reviews and stuff. And that surprisingly ended up working quite well, I suspect, because a lot of people listened to indie music in France at the time. Yeah. But not many places covered it. So unless you spoke English, basically, and could read the NME, like mm-hmm. you didn't really have much to read. So, so yeah, no, it was kind of way like in the end, I had this like small team of people like across France and like wow. Switzerland and Belgium. Um, and I sort of like dispatched them to different gigs to interview different bands and stuff. You know, which is basically why I got terrible grades, I think, at my baccalaureate, because I was just like busy running a website. Um, and yeah, and then I moved here to study journalism and then and then became a journalist when I graduated. Um, so, so it's all been quite one track. <laughs> How did you become a journalist when you graduated? Was your first gig as a gossip columnist or...? Uh, it wasn't. I feel like... <laughs> 
I feel like this is going to start to paint a picture of who I am as a person. <laughs> I'm really enjoying um, it. But, uh, but no, so basically what happened is that, so I was going to graduate, so it was in 2013. I didn't, obviously I was terrified. Like my, my parents had basically said, look, like we can, you know, we can pay for you to live like over the summer. So you have like two months to find a job in journalism. But if by the end of August, you don't have a job in journalism, just take any job because we'll cut off the money, which is, mm. you know, entirely fair. So it's quite panicky. So I, was, like, I have no contacts in journalism. What am I going to do? But I was sort of seeing this guy at the time. So in the yeah, like last term of my last year, mm. uh, who who was like, who was my age, but who'd not gone to university. So he was a journalist already and was like, hey, like, let's go to the pub. I'll introduce you to some of my journalist friends. So, you know, you can start having contacts and network a bit and stuff. Right. And that was a guy I really liked. And also I was like terrified of meeting proper journalists. So I did what any 21 year old would do in that I got hammered, that I got very, very drunk in the pub. And I've got, so I've got very vague memories of what happened, but I think it involved me trying to pull dance on one of just like, but like not even a pull, but just like one of the pulls like in, in the bar, you know, as in like holding the ceiling kind of pull. And I stole a pizza, unclear where it had come from, and I went to eat it in the toilets by myself. Um, so anyway, mortifying. So I woke up the next day and I was just like, this is it. That was the beginning and the end of my career in the media. But <laughs> luckily, a few weeks later, uh, one of the women who was there was like, so clearly remembered me, texted me and was like, hey, so we met at the pub that night. I work at the Telegraph picture desk. I'm going on a holiday for two weeks and no one can cover my shift. So would you like to come in and do like shifts on the Telegraph picture desk? And I was like, oh, um, yeah, sure. So I um, taught myself Photoshop in like a week because I had no idea what I was doing. And then so I did that. And then at the end of those two weeks, their picture editor was like, look, we actually kind of need someone to be like, to hang around like, you know, a few days a week for the foreseeable future if you want to do this. Pretty. So I started doing that. And then basically, I think I kind of did an accidental like graduate scheme, but by myself. So I ended up just because I, I wasn't entirely sure at that point what I wanted to do within journalism. So mm -hmm. I just did lots of shifts, but I like, completely random. So yeah, I did Telegraph Picture Desk. I was doing fun internet like type BuzzFeed stuff for the mirror and data journalism for the mirror. I did, I was a Bitcoin reporter for a month. I did news for Metro. I did so like lots and lots of different things because mm. I, I was just basically trying to work by elimination, I guess, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So I did that for two years and then ended up, so one of the many things I did was ending up on the diary desk at the standard and mm. that was kind of the moment where I was like oh oh that's what I want to do like this mm. is what I'm enjoying and mm. so from that I kind of dug my nails into the desk basically of the Londoners diary desk mm. and kind of went I'm not leaving and so eventually uh Joy Ludico the then editor just hired me and what was your life like as a diarist what did you have to do because I mean as you just said I I was also a diarist and I think I went out sort of every weeknight for a for my first year of doing that eventually when I started to edit a diary that was a good excuse to say I didn't have to go out anymore but when I you know when I was working as a reporter on a diary I just went out constantly and had to strike up conversations with total strangers at parties not knowing anyone I, I imagine you had a similar a similar experience um I did and I think the diary is a slightly weird thing because when you look back you're like oh my god these were the best years of my life <laughs> I had the most fun it was incredible but at the time I do vaguely remember so like talking to my friends being like I want to die <laughs> like, I will I will die soon so I yeah I mean I think yeah obviously it involved lots of going to events but so I was quite lucky in that basically at some point I got to talk to my editor and be like look 
I don't really want to do art stuff or entertainment or whatever because I know nothing about that. Can you just let me? Like, I promise I will get you stories, but can you get me? Can you let me just do stuff around politics and around Westminster? Mm. Um, and I think she partly said yes because I was so bad at like, everything. Because <laughs> no, I do think that part of the job of the diarist as well is to know who people are in your certain patch. Yeah. Um, and I do remember, which is that I'm still mortified. Really early on, actually, at the diary, I went to this arts industry dinner and I was sat next to this guy and I was really struggling because I had absolutely no idea who he was. <laughs> Um, and it's really hard to like quite try and get close to someone. So no, I I didn't. I like, genuinely I had nothing to go on. And at someone else, so. But and, anyway, so what 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 you been uh, what you been up to recently? And he's like, well, you know, I won the Turner Prize. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my god. Uh, uh, but anyway, so I feel like you know part of the job of the diarist is that you have to know who your crowd is. And with politics, obviously, I could. So so yes, yeah, so I just go to lots of events. Um, and I think it was, I feel really lucky because I feel like. So as a maybe junior political reporter, like, you know, on a serious politics desk, whatever, you have to go through the kind of ranks before you get to talk to the really interesting senior people. So, mm. you know, I think if you start out, you probably talk to just like people who work for MPs or whatever, like really junior um, backbenchers, people who no one cares about, whatever. Whereas, you know, at the diary, I was like 23 or something and going to drinks receptions. Um, and having like tipsy conversations with Philip Hammond, who was defence secretary <laughs> at the time. But yeah, so I feel like I, I just basically went around and chatted to chatted to MPs and stuff, and uh, and got quotes from them. And and yeah, it was really fun. I mean, again, I wouldn't do it again. I think like that's done. That's a, you know, I can't go out and have like because I think any you'll probably have that as well. But and is the worst complaint as well because no one feels sorry for you. But it was at the end of the week being like, if I see one of the canopy <laughs> I will just walk into the Thames <laughs> like the amount of dinners I had that was just basically how many canapes can I eat mm. at this event because I will crash and fall asleep the second I get home mm. yeah no I can very much relate to that I can very <laughs> much relate to that you worked at BuzzFeed for a while as well and then you went freelance why did you decide to go freelance and, and what is it like being a freelance political journalist? Does that make it harder to get access to people or is it actually quite quite widespread? Um, so yes, yeah, so I was at BuzzFeed for a year, which I didn't enjoy for a variety of reasons. Um, some of them, I think, to do with the job in general, some with BuzzFeed, some with me. So that was kind of, you know, an, an experiment that was tried um, and, and that didn't quite work. Um, and yes, yeah, so I went freelance just over two years ago. And it is a bit of a weird one. So I think that like, being a freelance political journalist in that there's not that many of us. So I feel like I know quite a lot of freelance, like full-time freelance journalists, but... Mm most of them will write about basically other stuff. Um, then either like culture, entertainment, um, whatever, anything else. Um, but yeah, so I think that's basically good for me because whenever places want to commission a freelancer to write about politics, I know that there's very few of us, so like, they're quite likely to come to me and be like, hey, do you want to write this? Mm. Which is nice. Mm. But you know, obviously the problem is that this is a very boring, like, um, wonkish point, but in order to have a pass to get into parliament as a journalist, like the passes are tied to the publication, not mm. the journalist, so basically, mm is just each publication gets a number of passes that they can then allocate to their journalists. So if you're freelance, uh, you can't have one. Seems uh, so old-fashioned. It is, it is. And it's so it, it's it's quite dumb. Like it's, um, I've been meaning to do a campaign about this, uh, but I've just not had the time. But yeah, so it does mean that I basically have to like beg my friends who work in Parliament if I want to get in or like quickly or not have to queue. Mm. Um, so I think there's an element of that as well. And there's an element of, I think, because again, because it's all quite, as you said, like old fashioned and quite, you know, oh, you know, you have to work for like the Times or the Telegraph or whatever, the Guardian. People kind of forget that you exist a bit sometimes, mm. so you, which is why. And I think, again, that's why I'm kind of thankful. I used to be a diarist, so I'm 
quite used to that, but I feel like I personally physically have to be around quite a lot to remind mm-hmm. people that I exist. Mm-hmm. So I try to, you know, any, any event I get invited to, basically, I try to go for at least, you know, just like 20 minutes to show my face because I, I feel like I physically need to remind people mm. of the fact that I exist at least once a week, mm. Um, mm. which is a bit, you know, maybe I'll get tiring after a while, but for now, it's all right. Well, I mean, you also do quite a lot of TV and you're very present on social media, which must be good for that. And I wanted to ask you about um, your TV work because uh, you're often the youngest person on the sort of panel when when you're doing those kind of talking head type shows do you get nervous do you find that intimidating you always seem very confident in that in that milieu uh i don't so i um this is such a like small as violin but um i actually don't really enjoy doing television which is i think like my terrible so many people say that but it's just because i think and obviously i mean it is partly the stress but i think though that's got better now but I think, and again, you know, and it's, it's not just about telly, I guess, because um, even my writing, like part of the reason why I left BuzzFeed was because I was like, I want to write long reads and long features. Like if mm. there's a thing that interests me, I want to spend quite a lot of time, you know, digging into it and being like, and here's this and this and that, you know, whatever. And I think that TV is kind of a similar issue for me in that, you know, you kind of booked um, and it's either, you know, like, and I normally try to only say yes if it's something that. I genuinely find interesting or I'm mm. genuinely qualified to talk about but then you know you'll kind of come in you're like I have you know I have spent the past two hours thinking of stuff to say and then you kind of get sat on a chair and you get asked like two to three questions in under four minutes and they're like thank you so much for coming bye so oh oh okay um, <laughs> I haven't even got warmed up well yeah no no exactly um so so yeah no so I'm not I don't know I, I, I don't really enjoy it and also I do think that they do try quite hard to make you have like to you know especially if it's a panel to get you to disagree with each other and be quite sort of like strident and stuff which is not like, I hate arguing but mm. it's not and I think that's the strain of you know not just politics in the UK but clearly the quite so like posh public school like culture of like you know mm. like the debate societies and you know mm. isn't it fun just having like you know strong intellectual arguments and I just don't you know I, it's not something I enjoy at all mm. <laughs> so mm. Um, mm. but I still do it occasionally because yeah it, it is good for the profile and so back to the book, how how did it come about? What was the process? I know you had an idea and you pitched it to an agent. Tell me more about that. Uh, but you know, that's basically what happened. So last April, there was one night I couldn't sleep. But like, you know, those nights when you're just like, you really, really can't sleep and you can tell that it's going to take ages. Mm. Um, and I was kind of like lying in bed and I was like, you know what? I have been thinking, so since going freelance, basically, I'd been thinking about the fact that I wanted to write a book. Like, I've always wanted to write a book, basically. And I was like, okay, I'm just, you know, I'm here. I've got nothing else to do for probably the next two to three hours. I'm going to try and come up with a book I should write. Mm. And I was like, okay, how about I think about it the other way? So I thought, okay, what what am I interested in? And then obviously politics. So I was like, okay, well, you know, something within that. What am I interested in within politics? Like, what do I like? What do I care about enough that I can care about it for six months? Because I've got quite a short attention span. Um, and I was like, oh, gossip. Like, mm. And then, you know, and it was quite amusing because it was it just very obvious. It was like, mm. oh, yeah, no, that, that's the one thing I actually really enjoy and find super interesting. And I kind of actually came up with the title, Haven't You Heard, that night and kind of woke up in the morning and Googled around, you know, sort of like really cautious Googling. So it's like, please, please let there be no book on this already. You know, and there wasn't, but I nearly found it quite odd because I really, really assumed there would have been a book because for me that was such an obvious idea of a book to write. And, mm. you know, because it's such a, that gossip is such an important part of politics. But yeah, you know, so I sort of like wrote down some ideas and then, like a lot of moments in my life, I took to Twitter <laughs> and I basically just tweeted because I had no idea what to do. So I tweeted being like, hello, I think I have an idea for a book. I don't know if it's good or bad, 
how should I proceed? <laughs> <laughs> and basically, yeah, so Imogen, uh, who's now my agent, got in touch. She was like, hey, I'm an agent. Do you want to go for coffee and maybe chat about the idea? Um, and then she really liked the idea. I really liked her. And so I signed with her and then the rest is history. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, an, it's unusual because, you know, saying that it's a politics book and it's about how different sort of procedures and different parts of politics work doesn't really do it justice because it's actually a hugely fun read. I don't think you have to be a political geek to want to read it and one of the things I particularly loved about it was sort of the weirdness of parliament that you captured which is sort of part and parcel of why these informal channels of communication become so important I mean even things like MPs not shaking hands and the fact that when people start their jobs whether it's as a special advisor or as an MP they just don't really know what to do and there's no, no one really tells them can you tell me a little bit about that was was that a surprise to you or was that something that you were already aware of? I mean you must have been aware of all the weirdness of Westminster um, not really I think not the extent of it but actually that's quite funny so um, the way I sort of because obviously like the, the very beginning of the very sort of premise of the book is you know no one in Westminster knows what they're doing mm. and that basically came from one of my best friends who is a journalist and we're having this chat so I was about to basically start writing the book but I wasn't quite sure how to organize it you know because I had all my quotes and all my research and stuff but um so we're just having this chat in the pub and she was like and she just interviewed I can't remember who like you know that day some politician just when she was like look do you ever have that thing where you wonder if you maybe have been interviewing people wrong this entire time <laughs> so what do you mean she was like well I've probably interviewed hundreds of people by now but also I've never watched anyone interview anyone else and no one ever taught me. So what if I've been doing wrong literally this entire time when she's in her 30s? Mm. <laughs> and, you know, and we had quite a fun chat about that. But then that kind of stayed with me because I was like, but actually that's true. Like, do I interview people wrong? Do yeah. I, you know, and so and then from there, I kind of thought about sort of like every every other aspect of Westminster. And I think is the fact of, yeah, no one teaches you anything. It's not obvious. Like nothing is obvious mm. about how it works. And I think, yeah, for example, one of the, you know, when you come in, one of the things that I think becomes quite striking is that Parliament, you know, from the outside might look, so, you know, you kind of have your 650 MPs and you, you would assume, I think, reasonably that, you know, they're just like offices or, you know, it's like one big company with 650, M- like, teams or whatever. Mm. But it's actually very much like 650 separate small companies like mm. that are completely different from each other because each MP will run their office entirely mm. differently, will go about things entirely differently. And then obviously as a result, the people who work for them will do the same. And that's why actually as a, as a side note, I think you end up seeing so many MPs hiring their relatives or their spouses mm. because because they all work in such, you know, unique ways. Um, mm. And also because the hours are so weird and so long and you have to be so close to the person who works in your office that, you know, it becomes easier to basically hire someone who already knows you. Mm. Um, so there's that. But I think, yeah, again, like every aspect of Westminster is is that kind of weird mix of quite odd, not immediately obvious how it works. And there's kind of no one to teach you how to do it because everyone kind of does it differently. Mm. And, yeah, and so as a result, I think that's why people have to end up relying a lot on informal conversations and informal ways of learning how to do stuff and I think that's one of the big sort of ways in which gossip influences politics because Mm. actually you find out and you know there's there's lots of like sociological studies on that um, anthropological studies one of the rules of gossip in society can be to deliminate behavior I guess so Mm. you know so from I don't know Basically, if you hear a story, if people are gossiping about, you know, X and Y did this thing, then what that teaches you is that the thing they did is not socially acceptable within that bubble. And so actually you learn how to model your behaviour on others via the medium of gossip. Yeah. Um, So another thing, you know, a a lot of that happens. The other thing that I think people will find surprising, I mean, particularly if, if they're not 
inside the Westminster bubble is uh, how friendly MPs from different parties can be with one another and how there's this sort of party structure but then there's all these horizontal things that cut across like geography if they're MPs from nearby constituencies or if they've worked on a select committee together or even identity like female MPs you talk Mm. about you know bonding over working together say on domestic violence legislation or something like that can you tell me a bit about that and 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 how you think that changes how politics is is done in the UK sure I think one of the one of the bits I actually quite liked in the book is from Clark in the House of Commons who was talking about one of the biggest realizations you have in Westminster when you sort of like sort of come in basically and you know and it should be obvious but I think it it is quite striking when it does happen to you of basically realizing that you know some MPs who politically you know depending on you know it doesn't matter whether you're public uh, about your political views or not you do have political views so you know you end up meeting so yeah an MP who shares all your political views and you know if you could be an MP you'd be them whatever and they're horrible (laughs) or they're really dull or you know they're quite sexist or whatever you know but then in the same day you can meet some MP who you know their voting record makes you want to throw up um and you think they're just like you know a horrible horrible politician horrible person um and then you meet them you're like oh my god they're so charming and funny and nice Mm. and like so helpful and Mm. genuinely like quite kind Mm. um and so I think that's something you have to I know for me at least, and I think yeah, clearly for other people um, I interviewed for the book, it is quite a odd realisation. And I think that's how the kind of bubble feeling ends up getting created. So I mm. think that, because I mean, the book is not some sort of like great defence of like the political bubble, the elite or whatever, mm. but it is it is kind of a plea. Like it, It's kind of trying to ask people to consider the fact that people, even people who work in politics, are just people and they're just mm. human beings and mm. actually you know, human sort of like relationships and friendships matter quite a lot as they would mm. everywhere else. And so, yeah, so I think when you come in, you can see that, you know, lo- lots of actually yeah, left-wing and right-wing people can be friends. So like one example is that, and I found that out recently actually, so one Tory MP I know and one Labour activist I know are mates. And I was like, how, how the hell did that happen? And it just turns out they campaigned together against Scottish independence um, and kind of became friends that way. So I think you do end up having lots of unlikely friendships or like the same actually another friend of mine who's a former uh, Labour special advisor and we went to some event together and then she saw this like Tory minister there and they were like oh my god and I like, went for a big hug and I was like what <laughs> um, and yeah it turns out they were best mates at university and, and right. you know, so I think you have so many of these connections and you do kind of learn in a weird way I think to not quite put people's politics behind but I think it's just the fact that who you are as a person your personality and your interests and whatever actually ends up mattering more than you'd think it would Mm. the other thing that was really interesting and sort of feeds into that was the role of the kind of the bars and of of booze in particular you know they have these various bars within parliament which attract a different crowd and so the people you interact with will depend on on the bar you go to but it was also interesting because you made the point that that sort of drinking culture and the fact that that oils the wheels is not terribly sort of conducive towards people who also have say a family or who don't drink or even women to an extent because you talk about the sort of social penalties of a woman who's seen to be staying out late with a bunch of men can you tell me about that um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, in the and it, it, it is in the book, but um, in the course of writing the book, I, I found out that I'd been having an affair with an MP, 
uh, which was very much news to me. But um, but it was actually quite funny. I was having lunch with a journalist who who kind of like brought it up in a very sort of like matter of fact kind of way. <laughs> so it wasn't even. Oh, by the way, I heard that you were sleeping with X. It's like, and obviously, given that you used to sleep with X, and I was like, what? And that you know, and, and that is an MP I do know, and we're like mates. But that that's genuinely it. like <laughs> nothing has ever happened. But that was quite interesting because it's clearly that's something that circulated enough within those circles mm-hmm. that you know, again, like um, my mate felt that he could just present that as facts when it's like but actually hang on like it's just the fact that I'm a political journalist and he's a politician and yes we've had drinks before because that's how our job works Mm. and you know and if I'd been a man I think you know people could have seen a male political journalist hang out with MP like but literally like twice I think Mm. and be like yes no obviously this is not about sex you know they're just both doing their job yeah and so I do think that as a woman in Westminster you kind of get a lot of that which is really annoying because I'm personally both quite friendly and I also just quite enjoy going out and mm. meeting people. Well, you also have to because it's it's your nurturing sources. Mm. No, no, exactly. And, and I do think, you know, I talked to her a few months ago to this quite young female political journalist who's brilliant and she was saying, oh, I never basically go have drinks um, around Westminster with an MP after like 6pm and I never try to basically be out in the bars after a certain time or just one-on-one with a man. Um, like with you know be that advisor or MP whatever and it's like that really sucks mm. like you know and, and maybe it's a personality thing as well where she generally doesn't really want to do it but beyond that she felt that she you know she didn't want to risk it basically and it's like but again like every male political journalist in the land would do that without a second thought mm. um, so that is clearly a thing and then there's the other thing of like I do remember chatting to like it's super nice of like young uh, wannabe journalists who was like hey like yeah but see, I'd like to become a political journalist you know, how do I sort of get into the bubble? And yet, P.S., I, I, I didn't drink uh, for religious reasons. And I was like, huh. Uh. <laughs> and, you know, mm. because, it, you know, and, um, you can definitely do it. But I think that if you don't already have some, like, contacts within that environment and also, yeah, you don't you don't really get to use the shortcut of boozy socialising, then it is quite hard to come in. Mm. So it is very exclusionary as a culture. Um, mm. And also, you know, is the fact that, yeah, again, like, you know, sometimes people just, you know, can be very good journalists but just don't really want to go drink in Westminster mm. every night mm. like which which should be fine but mm. I think that you know and, and I'm not saying that you know every journalist in the land has to go get pissed with MPs like every night whatever but I think for like those crucial so like first few years in Westminster it doesn't massively help to sort mm. of like build your network so it, it does end up I think favoriting a certain type of people mm. Um, mm. Mm. it's fascinating one of the things you do for the book is interview dozens of I mean I don't know how many dozens of you talk to MPs you talk to special advisors you talk to journalists you talk to all sorts of people ministers former ministers not Tom Watson (laughs) as you mentioned in the acknowledgements but so many other people was that difficult getting people to agree to talk to you how did you uh, yes and no. So I ended up interviewing 84 people 84. in just over two months, which I would not recommend. That was far too many people and I nearly went mad. I mean, it was a, it was actually okay. I think it was the one really interesting thing about that, I think, was the gender split in that, especially looking at MPs. So, and you know, and if you read the book, and that's something I'm very conscious of, but also there's nothing I could do about it. So overwhelmingly, like, male MPs I interviewed were like, yeah, yeah, fine, can I go on the record, whatever. You know, and including people like James Cleverly, who's now a cabinet minister, mm. um, and stuff, whereas female MPs were, again, so overwhelmingly more likely to say, to either just turn down the idea of an interview on political gossip entirely, or be like, fine, we can have a chat, but I don't want my name anywhere near it. You can just say an MP. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that busy women were a lot more wary of being associated with, you know, with the idea of gossip or being a gossip or kind of, you know, gossiping about Westminster, mm. whereas the men didn't have those qualms 
at all. Mm. Um, so that was quite interesting. But apart from that, I think I was quite lucky in that people did mostly agree to meet and talk mm. to me, which mm. is nice. But yeah, no, no, it was quite fun. Because I, I think, again, like, it is... It is an interesting topic, and also is the fact that you know people who work in politics just really love talking about themselves, and also other people who work in <laughs> politics. Uh, <laughs> and it wasn't about Brexit, so I think they were just happy yeah. to be like, "Oh my god, yes, thank God, I can meet a journalist <laughs> and not have to talk about Brexit." Uh, I could see that would be refreshing. There's so many things that we're not going to get to cover today, but I, I really did. I mean, everything from you know learning about how that 15 minutes in the voting lobby was this Mm. perfect opportunity for everyone to literally lobby Mm. higher powers to weird rules like I mentioned the fact that MPs don't shake hands because they're all honourable gentlemen and so they don't (laughs) need to demonstrate their good intentions to all sorts of other things I just found it the the fact that the whips weren't actually that scary after all all these all these nuggets I I, hide in the bathrooms (laughs) (laughs) yeah the the toilet whip I found I found it uh, completely fascinating what was the process actually like I I think you wrote quite a lot of it in a cafe what are you like as a writer you also mentioned earlier that you did all your interviews and research and then you wrote it what was your sort of path in, in 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 that way did you kind of plan it all out did you how long did you spend writing it how did you divide your time so I did not give myself enough time I think to do it but the, the reasoning kind of being that both like I have quite short like I have no attention span to speak of mm. um so I know I could never be the sort of person who just works on a book for 18 months mm. um at all so yeah so there was that and also there was the fact that I was like okay you know I feel like if I've got a very tight deadline it makes me more likely to just get it done mm. um so I ended up so I got the contract the book deal in early July last year mm. and I said I'd hand in the book by Christmas mm. and so basically yeah so I spend so July and August uh, interviewing people and I was obviously use my advance to pay someone to transcribe my interviews for mm. me because uh, otherwise they would have been unmanageable mm. um, so yes yeah, so I spent two months kind of yeah asking for interviews doing interviews uh, until the first week of September then I spent about a week sorting out because there was so many quotes everywhere and I'd not really had the time to sort them before that because obviously I interviewed like 10 people a week <laughs> for two months so I did that then I took a short uh, no so then I spent a week at the British Library um, to do my actual sort of like more academic research which I mm. hated because I hate the British Library and also I hate academic research <laughs> um, but I guess I had to do it um, then I took a short break to go to party conferences uh, which are obviously like one of the most important parts of the calendar in Westminster so I sort of escaped to Birmingham and Liverpool uh, for a bit came back so then yeah, it sort of sorted everything out in my head so I was like okay how because obviously I'd had to write a chapter breakdown and everything for the proposal but by the point I'd done all the interviews and stuff I decided to do it quite differently um, so yes yeah, so I started writing in mid-October um, so yes yeah, so I wrote between mid-October and sort of like late December but no I, I just um, tried to write because it was um, 90,000 words in the end mm. but the way I did it because I don't know maybe that's how my brain works but um, I would actually recommend it to other authors or one of the authors because it really helped me is that I thought of it as percentage uh, percentage points mm. so I was like, okay every day I had to write 2% of the book um, mm. not on weekends obviously but you know it's I think I was quite lucky in that I'm already freelance anyway, mm. so I do have that discipline and I know how I work mm. and I already have a routine, so 
it was just a case of every day sort of like you know wake up and be like okay yeah today I have to write between two and four percent of the book mm. um, and do that um, and then and again you know that's something I do already as a freelancer but try to always have plans in the evening even mm. if it's just going for one drink with a friend mm. so that gives me a deadline because otherwise I think it's very easy to like say well I can just you know like faff about for a bit and then mm. you end up being sort of at 9pm going like where am I still working so mm. I have always the pub or something planned for like 6 or 7 mm. um, and yeah and so just do that every day try not to work on weekends then and she's thanked in the acknowledgements as well but Joy my former boss who has a cottage in the woods uh, in the Cotswolds I called her in a panic at some point and I was like oh my god I'm not going to finish it on time I'm really behind I'm really struggling can I escape to your house in the woods for a week and she was like yes fine um, and so I spent six days in yeah in this cottage, but generally in the middle of nowhere. Like, I did not see a road mm. um, or really other people for a week. Um, mm. And yeah, it turns out if you have literally no distraction whatsoever, you do get work done because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's kind of how I I did it, I guess. So yes, yeah, so it was quite quick, I guess, and and quite intense. But I feel like I didn't really have a breakdown. I was kind of expecting to have a breakdown towards the end of it. I had like a number of like mini breakdowns I went a bit existential occasionally but <laughs> apart from that I think it was okay um you mentioned distractions there and earlier you mentioned that you tweeted to your followers you know what do I do if I've got an idea for a book can I just ask you about that because you're hugely prolific on social media you tweet a lot and you have 67,000 followers what's your relationship with social media like I don't know I feel like depending on how I look at it it's either a very complex relationship or a really straightforward one and that, I think in terms of day-to-day stuff is just I yeah again as I mentioned I've got I find it really hard to focus on like anything for more than two minutes um, so Twitter is actually quite good for that in a weird mm. you know um, and that used to drive my old editors completely nuts but but it genuinely Twitter helps me to focus because mm. I know I can write like you know I can work on something on one side then take five minutes to tweet something or maybe like look at Twitter for a bit and then go back and that kind of like basically I feel like Twitter was made for my brain mm. um, because it really helped me do that. So yeah, so on the one hand, it's just kind of genuinely like there's no there's no grand plan or anything. So I've had people ask before, like, you know, like how much thought do you put into your tweets? Whatever. It's like literally none, literally none. It's just I think of a joke, I make myself laugh and then I tweet it. <laughs> like that's mm. basically what happens. Or, like, or an interesting thing I've read or whatever. Like, it's not, there's no, yeah, there's no, I don't really put any conscious thought into like social media strategy or whatever. Mm. But that being said... I, I don't know. I, I do I do find it quite interesting in terms of what it's done, I guess, in my sort of like social status or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of like especially in the age of the influencer. Mm-hmm. Um in the age of the kind of like social media personality and it is, you know, and, and I, I can't deny the fact that clearly I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for Twitter. Mm-hmm. But also which I'm very thankful for, um, even though it's very odd because what I do is effectively like, you know, just tweet again like dumb jokes about politics. But equally I think it is something that's quite maybe like gendered as well so which, which is a kind of more frustrating aspect where I've definitely especially as yeah, so like I don't know like drinks receptions in parliament or whatever been introduced to people as yeah oh this is Marie like she tweets a lot it's like <laughs> yeah that doesn't pay my rent though like I'm I'm a journalist I write you know I report on politics that's how I make my money so I think there's a bit of you know clearly like occasionally sort of like the occasion yeah patronizing like oh that's the funny twitter lady and it's like but that's not that's not what I that's not how I would define myself mm. um but equally, you know, can I really complain about that given that I do spend most of my waking minutes tweeting? I have to say, I always enjoy your tweets. I think you're very funny. And I think you're, I think it's, you know, it's interesting to see someone use it in that way to compliment their career. And it's, 
an example really to young journalists it's it's really interesting and clearly it doesn't distract you too much because you managed to get a book done (laughs) (laughs) right we're running out of times so I need to let you go soon but I've just got a couple of quick things I want to ask you before I do after this I mean you'll be wrapped up with the the kind of promo for the book but what do you have next is there anything else that you're looking forward to this year or next I mean it's kind of been a struggle so I spent the past few months kind of because obviously I feel like the rhythm of writing a book is quite odd um in that so yes again you sort of like work very very hard for quite a long time and then you know and from January between January and basically that August for me it was, you know, mostly nothing happened or it was just the occasional emails of my publishers being like, hey, you know, just letting you know, like, I don't know, the legal read is being done or whatever. But then with the very occasional, there you go, we have edits now, do them in three days and whatever. <laughs> but also knowing that obviously there'd be, the book would be coming out and there'd be like, you know, and that'd be quite intellectually taxing. But, you know, so I kept wanting to be like, okay, what's next? You know, what can I do now? What can I do now? And then basically having, you know, kind friends and relatives being like, maybe you can wait. Maybe, maybe you can wait until that's out the way and then maybe you can relax a bit and then, then maybe you can do another thing because for ages I was like and I'm going to write a play and I'm going to write a novel I'm so pumped but yes no so I, I decided to listen but I do have an idea for a second book which um, which is like very very early stages where I'm just literally at the stage of like chatting to my agent and she currently doesn't hate the idea um, so yeah just that that's it but, um, but yeah hopefully that another sort of uh, politics book or something totally uh, ish a bit Okay. Uh, politics adjacent. And finally, just a question I ask everyone, which is if you could go back and give your younger self perhaps the kind of aspiring journalist who was just hoping to get into it or, or you know, any other life stage, if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? That's a really tough one, actually, because I'm sort of, like, pretty happy with where I've ended up. <laughs> so I'm not sure there's anything I'd sort of, like, change. I mean, probably just actually keep doing what you're doing and don't mm. take shit from people trying to change who you are mm. that's um, a good one i like it it's rules rules to live by for everyone <laughs> uh, marie thank you so much uh, for coming on it's been such a joy to speak to you and i i absolutely uh, love the book and to everyone listening haven't you heard is out now Uh, so thank you very much for listening to the sunday salon please do share your thoughts about the episode with me i'm on twitter and instagram at alice zania and more importantly if you are enjoying the podcast please please do rate or review it Uh, it really makes a difference to its position in the charts uh, so i'd be eternally grateful and until next week thank you very much and goodbye 